Andrew Soltz, an Emmy and Grammy award-winning producer, writer, director, owns the priceless Ed Sullivan Show Library, which includes some of the most groundbreaking performances in music, comedy, theater, and more. And to talk about it all is Andrew Soltz. Good evening, Andrew. Good evening, Dave. It's the famous, famous WGN, and I actually, when I started in television news, here at KTLA Channel 5 in Los Angeles when I just gotten out of UCLA Graduate School of Journalism. My first job, I was working with a producer who was straight out of WGN in Chicago, and he talked about WGN as uh, the greatest learning place oh, for cool. his career. And uh, his name was Jerry Rubin. He worked in television here for many years. And uh, then when I went to Chicago, I, I, I got to understand it better. It really is an important station that blasted the whole middle of the country absolutely is both television and radio yeah legendary 90 years this year we're celebrating if you can believe that Wow, amazing yeah good stuff great you yourself you know you spent a lot of your early years in london and and i believe south africa before you moved to the states in the late 50s what are your memories of the ed sullivan show growing up well you know i came to america i was 11 years old as you say when we arrived here and uh, my uncle was a screenwriter in Hollywood, and uh, uh, it, it was, it was f- first of all, interesting that I grew up in a world in South Africa which had no television. So when I got to Rome, when I was just turning 11, I saw television for the first time, and it was about 5 o'clock in the morning, and I was uh, totally jet-lagged, and I turned on this box that sat on four you know, legs, and I said, what is this thing? Obviously, <laughs> I'd heard about it, but wow. I had never seen it, and there was a little man inside teaching Italian against a blackboard, and I just was transfixed by it. By the time we got to New York, where there were seven channels, and it was on day and night, and there were game shows in the morning, and then there was excitement in the afternoon, and Bud Collier, and Beat the Clock, and all these things were going on, and I couldn't get out of the hotel room. I said, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. This invention is beyond... And I've always loved television from that moment, but what really hit me and what was so much fun was watching the Sullivan Show starting right then, and we watched it as a family. You know, my parents and my brother and I sat around, and Sunday night was Sullivan, and obviously I had to have my homework in the can, as we say, by then and done, and... uh, it was just marvelous because you never knew really who was going to be on. They'd have some information in TV Guide, but uh, there were a lot of surprises that Ed introduced at the top of the show, and those were the ones that were often the biggest stars. Yeah, you know, you said there were, you know, back then there were only really even three channels back in the day, and each home typically had one television. So, you know, in a time where so many families, there's, there's multiple TVs, they're watching it on their iPad or their iPhone or on their laptop or whatever it might be, the family's kind of split up on what, the, you know, every, there's so much for everybody with hundreds of channels, you know, targeted to each individual person. There's rare times, well, maybe with the exception of like the Super Bowl and, and, and the Oscars and the Grammys where it's, you know, yeah. live programming or sports programming is so important. There's those, it's rare these days that people all sit and watch the same program at the same time as a family. Absolutely. It's completely different. And uh, it is surprising, uh, you know, that you can get 111 million people to watch a Super Bowl basically live, which happened the other day. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the way we time shift and watch television and are able to record and save and, uh, you know, re-watch, I mean, it's just fantastic the, the way we can enjoy television today. And of course, that's not even factoring in the number of channels and number of good shows 
you know, they talk about the golden age of television having been somewhere in the mid-50s to mid-60s or whatever, or early 60s. And uh, I could make an argument that there's never been so much great programming on television as there is now, and that it is giving the movies a real run for the money because it's uh, a panorama of great entertainment and uh, such a wide variety of drama and comedy and movies. and It's fantastic what's available to us. Of course, it costs a lot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. It but it is does. something we can uh, enjoy in a way we never could before. Well, and here's what's a really cool thing. So this show was on every Sunday night. And I, was, I was born in the mid-60s, so I was little. I do remember, you know, really in the 70s watching uh, the show, the early, early 70s, obviously. Yeah. And um, there was, you know, you talk about all the different channels. I, th- I think Ed, from a pioneering standpoint, you know, now that there's so many channels to watch, he tried to jam so many different things and genres and types of entertainment yeah. into his one show. He was really trying to be that show that was something for everybody. Exactly. He His idea was, obviously, to make sure that the whole family would watch, that nobody would turn it off, that there was something for the kiddies, whether it was Topo Gijo or the Muppets or Sherry Lewis or whatever. And then there was something for, you know, the teenagers, the rock and roll and pop music, especially as that exploded and started, you know, in the mid-50s with Elvis and Bill Haley and a slew of other acts that followed. And then there was the classical and the opera, and there was something for the parents and the grandma, there was novelty, there was great comedy. Everybody who was anybody was on. If you did two Sullivan uh, appearances in a year, you could be booked in nightclubs for a couple of years to come. It's amazing. It was that important. And uh, Ed was, you know, un- an unlikely host, obviously. He could barely get a sentence out straight, but he <laughs> certainly was a great producer. He had a, a knack for talent, loved talent, loved searching out the new. He loved scoops. He was a newspaper man originally. And the fact he didn't fill his show with him trying to be funny or sing or dance or, you know, do any of the uh, classic entertainment forms, he just basically said, I open my stage to you and here they are. And then he introduced them. So it was... Uh, it was really a, a breakthrough kind of television show, and the reason I think it still holds up today is because it's the artists we're watching, right. and artists in their prime, and they knew that there were 30, 35 million people, even in the America of those days, where the population was considerably smaller, half about what it is, or close to it, and uh, you know, you, you gave it your all, and it was for history on that stage, and uh, it was make or break, so you got everybody from Ella Fitzgerald and Sammy Davis Jr. and Satchmo or, you know, Richard Pryor or Bob Newhart or Bob Hope or, you know, there's uh, Jackie Gleason. You know, there, there wasn't a major artist in American television who didn't appear there, and a lot from Europe as well. And well, that hunted them down. And what's funny is, okay, so it was called The Ed Sullivan Show, and just like you said, he, di- he didn't really have... You know, a lot of people said he had no personality, but I mean, his job right was to was to be more of a talent scout and to and to pull together and a very meticulously planned show so that he did have everything, a little bit of everything for everybody. That's really what his job was. His job was to introduce it, step aside, and let his guests be the star of the show. Yes, 
And and also, Dave, what he really was good at, and he doesn't get much credit for, but he was a great producer. He knew which person would be good in which show, how to r- routine a show, how to build it, how to hold the audience, and how to leave you, you know, wanting more at the end. Well, and and that was part of his gift. I mean, if he were just a a guy who could introduce and he had a talent scout, then you know he wouldn't have lasted almost a quarter of a century on the air. He he was a guy who. He had to, you know, break the barriers and bring in talent. I mean, look what happened with the Beatles. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that he got out of a plane at Heathrow and was seeing the crowds there and said, what the heck's going on here? And he got the name the Beatles the first time, went to his hotel and called uh, Brian Epstein, got his number somehow, and, and just opened the discussion so that if and when they wanted to come to America, his stage was going to invite them to be on right away and then they waited until they had the first number one hit here and then they said now let's go and the contract was already in place because brian had come over and signed and he got three weeks in a row because elvis had three appearances he wanted to be treated like elvis and people at the sullivan show said well wait a minute why would you be so in favor of a british act that no one's ever seen and there has been no precedent for a british act coming over and knocking off, uh, knocking our socks off uh, and, and getting everybody worked up about how great they are. But uh, he had a gut. He had a golden gut, and uh, it often uh, proved right. I love, and I love that story, that he was literally at the airport and just saw the commotion going on, and, and that alone, that moment, created yeah. what is today American history in a, in a 50th anniversary celebration. And Sylvia and Ed, you know, his, his wife, yeah. They went around, you know, kind of doing that all the time. They were they were talent scouts. They went and, and, and hit the clubs and so forth, yeah. and they were going out there and yeah. finding those people. Those people, yeah, I'm sure people came to them and they were pitched and so forth, but yeah. they were out there looking for the next big thing. Absolutely. You know, he was a Broadway columnist. He was a sports columnist, and he loved the, the New York nightlife. He would go clubbing at the store club and other clubs, and uh, he was out all night. He would most often come in at 3 or 4 in the morning, and he and Sylvia would go and find talent or just go see who was there. And if somebody was, you know, really impressive while they were sitting at the table and knocking back a couple, he would say, you know, why don't you come over to the show and uh, appear on the show next Sunday? And that's how it happened. And then somebody would say, well, you know, Ed, there's this comedian downtown that really is amazing. He does a takeoff on you. So what do you mean to take off on me? So he goes down, he sees Will Jordan, he says, this is unbelievable, we've got to have him on. And then they found a way to make him, you know, laugh at himself with self-deprecating humor. He was a good sport. Yeah, he was a good sport. But he really loved talent. I mean, that was so genuine about him. He loved the fact that people had extraordinary gifts, and he really showcased them and... uh you know, what he did in presenting great Broadway shows. I mean, you know, the best material on Broadway from the 50s and 60s is all on the Sullivan show. You know, the the uh, Tonys were a, a minimal uh, operation in those days. There's not much to, to look at, but he figured out a way, you know, to get them. There were issues with the, the theater owners and why would people want to go. And, you know, he had a lot of battles with... Even the movie moguls who said, you know, why would we want to help you? Why would we want to 
get you to be successful so people won't go out of the house to go see films. And he said, well, wait a minute. You can have your stars on my show. I'll promote your movies, and right. maybe then they'll go to see the movies. And the same happened with Broadway, and they suddenly realized, my God, Sullivan isn't the enemy. Sullivan is going to help us get people in our seats, and that's another one of his clever ways of building his power and his success. And before long, he was really the arbiter of American pop culture and taste. We are talking to Andrew Solt, owner of the Ed Sullivan Library, and there's more with him next on 720 WGN. So that was Elvis Presley on The Sullivan Show. One of the people I wanted to ask you about is one of Ed's producers, Bob Precht, who was also Ed Sullivan's son-in-law, still with us, by the way, at the age of 91. He deserves a lot of credit for bringing contemporary acts to The Ed Sullivan Show. Absolutely. I think, you know, Bob came into the show, I think, in the late 50s and took over in, I think, 60, 61, around there, and made an incredible uh, change in the show in that uh, he he invigorated it and and, uh, brought in a a much better... uh, sensibility especially in regard to what the kids wanted and what we were watching and it was a a very important impact especially on popular music i mean then they realized that uh before the beatles there were always pop stars on but with the beatle arrival and and the impact of that first show uh, 73 million americans watching it and the massive rating that uh you know having rock and roll on as part of the weekly menu was a good idea, and I mean, the number of great uh, artists he brought to the show, from the doors to the birds and the stones and the animals and, uh, you know, anybody who was who. Some really edgy stuff, even, for that time, too. Oh, yeah, Yeah. the first early metal, (laughs) heavy metal. (laughs) That's true. You know, it's, uh, but then it was the soft soul of Sam Cooke and, you know, the the pop stuff of... uh, Leslie Gore and uh, you know Barbara Streisand was on and uh, but everybody from Motown was on Supremes and the Temptations and Stevie Wonder Smokey Robinson and the Miracles Gladys Knight and the Pips yeah BB King Bo Diddley Buddy Holly Creedence Clearwater Revival the Dave Clark Five I'm just looking at some of the list here Herman's yeah. Hermits Ike and Tina Turner the Jackson Five Janis Joplin Jefferson Airplane oh. I got to read these because they're, they're, it's incredible when yeah, you think about this is. list Judy Garland Liza Minnelli Louis Armstrong, The Mamas and the Papas, Nancy Sinatra, uh, Phyllis Diller, Ray Charles, Ricky Nelson, Rodney Dangerfield, Rosemary Clooney, Sammy Davis Jr., Sonny and Cher, The Fifth Dimension, uh, The Everly Brothers, Loving Spoonful, The Muppets, of course, The Temptations, Tom Jones, Tony Bennett. I mean, it was, yeah. it was, I mean, that's why it this. It was this, who's who, and it really oh. was the sense that if you didn't do Sullivan, you know, there was something odd, you know. The mm-hmm. biggest stars wanted to do the show, and, and Ed, Ed was kind of their buddy, you know. And he was also, before he got the show, he was doing charity events, and he knew a lot of the big stars. But once he really, you know, had the, the cloud of the show, he could kind of say, come on, you got to come on the show, or what do you want to do? We'd love to have you on the show. And he could make it work, and it was a perfect... Uh, showcase for them to step forward and and, uh, say whatever it was they wanted to share. You know, it could be an actor, it could be a poet, it could be, you know, um, people talking about uh, problems. You know, there were issues that came to fore, you know, with uh, some of the great directors and producers and people speaking their mind about what was going on in America and political figures. And and then he'd love having the sports figures on, whether it was Mickey Mantle and Roger Merritt. Legends. Legends, Sandy Koufax and, uh, 
you know, great football players. And then, of course, you know, the All-American teams, and you look at them today, and there's Jerry West, and, you know, as a kid. And uh, all these guys were on the stage, and it was such a great mix because every three to five minutes it changed again completely. You never knew what was coming next, and pretty soon there was an animal act, and then you were on to, you know, Senor Wences and... uh, (laughs) And the the Rolling Stones. (laughs) And the Rolling Stones and the plate spinner and... uh, you Seriously, know, yeah. Clown car, you know. It, yeah. it was, it was really, it was really uh, the big tent approach, and and uh, the, the novelty stuff is great in retrospect. I mean, you can't believe some of these acts ever occurred. But he took vaudeville, which he knew, and uh, basically gave it a high tech uh, injection for the day. Well, especially the fact that he started in 1948. That's kind of incredible to me. I mean, he was on in the early 70s, but he started in 48. I mean, really one of the first television shows, yeah. <laughs> national television shows. He was 46 years old. You know, he was yeah. not exactly a spring chicken. Yeah. So he was, you know, coming out of experience of his years in New York and the media and, and, and the press. And he'd also had a fledgling movie career. He did some movies, uh, B-movies, but he was never really you know, great on film. And, and once he found the Sullivan thing, you know, his show, which at first was called Toast of the Town, you know, he slowly dug his claws in so they, they couldn't move him out because there were too many attempts to say, listen, to sponsors, you want to have the show, we'll change the name to whatever you want and we'll get somebody else in if you don't like Ed, but we want to change, a, you know, the the package for next season. And he heard about these things and he then said, well, Everybody calls to show the Ed Sullivan show. Why is it still toast to the town? So after five years, he got that taken care of. Yeah. And his name went from, you know, being uh, a little smaller to being bigger as the host and, uh, you know, getting a little more attention. And then after the Beatles came on and he made real history, then he had a renegotiation with CBS. And he said to Bill Paley and his lawyers, he said, you know, I think it's time that the show not only is the Ed Sullivan show, but it should be Ed Sullivan Productions. And I'd like to own the show. And the lawyer said, there's no way. You know, we don't uh, let talent own the shows. You know, if you come up with a show, you can maybe own it. But you didn't come up with this. And he said, well, I want to own it going forward. And I'd like the shows that are already in the can to be mine. And then eventually they came around and Paley said, nobody's going to watch these things anyway. It's old variety stuff. So why don't you just let Ed have it? Let's keep him on the air, make him happy. And that's how it changed in September 64. And if it weren't for that, the family wouldn't have owned it. And if it weren't for the family owning it, and I getting lucky by asking them what they were doing with it and kind of talking (laughs) them into selling it, because it wasn't really for sale. I'd just been licensing clips for different shows from, you know, films on John Lennon or Elvis Presley or the Rolling Stones or the Rock and Roll and stuff. I brought it up, and I was able to make an offer based on borrowing a fortune from a bank and praying a lot that I could make the payment. <laughs> so, well, that's all it is. Well, that ends well, but it's it's been a wonderful thing. It's like a great sandbox to play in every day. Yeah, it, it was in 1990 when he did it. And again, we were talking about you know Bob Preck, the uh, the executive producer, married Ed's daughter Elizabeth, and. Uh, you know, this is collection is, you know, 1,100 hours of, of classic television, over 10,000 live performances. Uh, you know, I mean, that's absolutely incredible. It is. It's it's a remarkable uh, uh, compendium of America, and it really reflects the post-war era like nothing else in one, in one spot. And uh, 
it's really uh, the 50s and 60s intact. It ends really kind of with Michael Jackson, age 10, in 1971. And uh, it covers the whole panoply of Americana. And after 9-11, I got a chill, and I said to myself, oh, my God, if that bomb that went into that, those planes that went into the building like a bomb had fallen here on our office on Sunset Strip in L.A., I think this whole library would have been destroyed. So I thought, we have to make another copy, and we did, and we made two or more copies, and we put it one in a salt mine in Kansas, eight miles down, that would be protected, so this thing could never be lost. It's kind of like Carson's uh, shows are in a salt mine. Right, they, there too, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, it's such important uh, cultural milestones for America in, in these reels, and we also worked with the Library of Congress because they wanted to. Con- they contacted us and said, "Well, what's happening with the library?" And I said, "You want a copy?" And they said, "Yeah." I said, "Well." We'll make one for you because I want to make sure no matter what happens to us and this fantastic uh, pile of tapes that came out in two big trucks, you know, we can put it on a smaller, you know, format today and it can be something that's there forever. And uh, it can also, you know, move into the new technologies and be uh, what we've done is recently digitized everything. So, Oh, that's terrific. We have a job of protecting it and saving it and upgrading it and uh, improving the quality of it. Even like the Beatles footage that's being seen now all the time, you know, we've digitized it and really made the best possible qualities from the original masters that we could and made sure the sound was optimal as well. By the way, on Sunday night on CBS at 8 o'clock, um, there's a show running called The Night That Changed America, which mm-hmm. is all about the 50th anniversary. Yep, tonight. The- yep, yep, yep. And uh, I was at the shoot, you know, and I'm involved with the show. And um, oh, 10 days ago, we, we shot the show, and it's just unbelievable. It's it's really one of the great moments in uh, television music history as well, I think, because not only do Paul and Ringo perform separately and together, but there's a great lineup of other artists doing Beatles songs. And uh, if your audience is interested in the subject matter, they may want to catch it because it'll be one that you'll want to watch again and again. I think it really was a remarkable uh, evening to be in that building. We're talking to Andrew Solt, owner of the Ed Sullivan Library, and there's more after the news next on 720 WGN. Welcome back. We're talking to Andrew Solt, owner of the Ed Sullivan Library. The Beatles on Sullivan in 1964 was one of the biggest pop culture moments ever to this day in American history. Absolutely. If you were there and that was happening in front of your eyes, it was the moment that You finally got to see them not only perform, but walk and talk and say a few words and then open those mouths to make those beautiful sounds and give us those songs that we'd been hearing on radio. And we can't forget that uh, President Kennedy had been assassinated about 10 or so weeks prior to that, and the country was living through some very dark days. I remember it was the first time that I could recall that my parents' generation seemed so shaken by what had happened that uh, it felt like, you know, I was 16, that the uh, world was kind of turned upside down for a moment, and it was very hard to get one's bearings back. But the minute the music started wafting over the radio airwaves and we could hear that sound and, uh, you know, some kind of joy came back into our lives, it was so different than what we were used to, and the music just was everywhere, and a couple of albums at the stores, and the next thing you knew, you know, it was Beatlemania all around, and 
the next thing. We were lucky enough to see them. And the February 9th debut was absolutely a, a must-see event. And it was one of those very happy shared events on one place. You know, in American television history, unfortunately, when things go awry, whether it's, you know, a tragic uh, assassination or whether it's, um, you know, a spaceship crashing or, you know, it's some kind of terrible event like 9-11, it's covered everywhere. But for this moment, February 9th, 64, it was only one place that it could be seen that was on CBS. And it was just uh, a standout moment where if you were around at the time, you, you kind of remember where you were and what was happening and what you felt. And that was kind of a title shift, I think, for our generation right at that point. Everything going forward was different. And what made the Beatles great was not only that they could make hits in 64, but starting soon thereafter, every year they put out a couple of albums and their their writing and their singing and their songwriting was just uh, improving all the time and their creativity at new heights. And uh, it's remarkable, their body of work and what they gave us in about seven or eight years. Well, it was such a shot in the arm, too, for America, uh, you know, at that time, as you said. And yeah. it was an estimated 73.7 million Americans watching John, Paul, George, and Ringo perform. And they did All My Loving, Till There Was You, She Loves You, I Saw Her Standing There, and I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was a moment. It was just a, a real uh, remarkable kind of uh, fascination that uh, was so passionate. I mean, people really couldn't get over these four guys, and they were so cute, and they were smart, and they were so talented, and they were they, they were confident, and they were witty, and they were outrageous, and they were outspoken. And, um, you know, New York came to its knees. I mean, they barricaded the city. You couldn't get down Broadway. People couldn't get into the theater, even if they worked on the Sullivan Show. You couldn't get near the Plaza Hotel. In fact, when they came back later in 1964, they wouldn't let them stay at the Plaza Hotel because the hotel said, we can't go through that again. (laughs) That's great. Had to find another place. They went to the Warwick, I think. Okay, all right. Let me ask you: from you talk about ten thousand performances and so forth, is this single episode probably one of the most important? Do you feel in your collection and in television history? Yes, definitely. Yeah. This this moment is the most watched television moment. If you actually do the math today and you multiply out the uh, population, yeah. and you do, you know, you you keep taking it forward uh, the fifty years. It's still the largest audience in the history of television. But obviously, now that we're 310 million Americans and not 175 or whatever we were, mm-hmm. um, you know, we are, you know, the Super Bowl killed it because it was 111. The last Super Bowl, surprisingly, is the highest, the most watched television show in television history, which I find surprising since it was so lopsided. Yeah, I, I do too. I, re- <laughs> I find it really amazing. But. You know, there is nothing like this anymore, but when you have an event that uh, is especially a sporting event or something that can be spoiled by social media, you have to watch it live. So CBS just announced today they're going to add games on Thursday night, too. I mean, the value of NFL and the value of live Live programming, you know, there's nothing like it. And the same for the Golden Globes or the Grammys or the Oscars or, you know. Or special events. Yeah, these special events are fantastic. And... uh, you know, but the that moment is pivotal for our generation. And uh, what followed, you know, the, the, the 60s really were born then. You know, it was not only a British invasion that occurred with some of the groups you mentioned, but 
And America answers back with some of the greatest rock and roll ever, and uh, rock and roll takes it into another high gear. And, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and uh, The Doors and everything that happened in the 60s, then, you know, it goes into the 70s and uh, you get Springsteen and the story keeps unraveling and being told. But that was the turning point. If you ask musicians, what got you into rock and roll? So many of them will say, well... February 9th, 1964 is when, you know, whether it was Billy Joel or Steve Van Zandt or Dave Crosby or whatever, that was the moment I knew what I was going to do. It was clear to me right then. And then there's a list as long as the phone book of other great musicians who are well-known who also say that was the moment that, I bet. you know, a big light went on in their heads. We are talking to Andrew Solt, owner of the Ed Sullivan Library, and there's more with him next on 720 WGN. And that was Jerry Lewis on Sullivan. We're talking to Emmy and Grammy Award-winning producer, director Andrew Solt, owner of the priceless Ed Sullivan Library. There's a great story about the other acts that were on the Beatles' first night on Sullivan, and one of the members of the Monkees were on stage long before that group even came together. The one that was interesting is that the cast of Oliver was on... And and Davy Jones right. was, was on the show, and uh, that was a very interesting thing. That there was a monkey on the show, <laughs> right? Before before the uh, Beatles show. No, just a handful of years later, he was he was on a show, and obviously in a group that was kind of mimicking the the success of the of the Beatles. I forgot about that. That he was in that play, and he was on that show. Yeah. And he said, you know, it was a magic moment for him as well. So, you know, it was interesting that he who was in the Broadway show that had just come over. But it's interesting, you know, Ed knew that he didn't have to book it too heavily. So he had, you know, a magician named Fred Capps on. He had Frank Gorshin, who was doing impressions. Oh, and, Frank Gorshin, the Riddler uh, from Batman, best known. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. And yeah. Terry McDermott, who uh, was a skater who had been in the Olympics, he takes a bow. And McCall and Brill, a comedy team, husband and wife, did a comedy routine. And because the kids were screaming and wouldn't pay any attention to them, their career started and ended that same day. Really? Yeah, it's sad, but uh, it's a truth. Uh, and and also, the old, uh, for the grand grandmas and grandpas, Tessie O'Shea came out and did some show tunes, and uh, some acrobats also joined in the, in the goings-on. Georgia Brown also sang. She was in Oliver. But again, but, just jammed with other people too, and and yeah. but the Beatles obviously uh, being the the biggest uh, part of that. Now, how many times did the Beatles ultimately appear on the program? Was it four times? They on that night they appeared five times. I mean, five, they sang five songs. But yes, on Sullivan they appeared four times. They did three Sunday nights in 1964, February 9th, 16th, and 23rd, and then in 1965 when they came back to do Shea. The Shea Stadium performance, which was the first and biggest concert of its kind, you know, filling up a stadium. They performed uh, that, and it opened the season on September 12th. But overall, they did, uh, I think, about uh, 20 songs. That's incredible. Or 22 songs, because they repeated some songs, like the big hits, like uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand and stuff. But... Uh, the second show was from Miami Beach, people may remember, and there was a famous Life magazine which had, you know, the Beatles at play and at rest and swimming in the ocean and having a good time. They went down there, they met this young 
boxer named Cassius Clay, who was just about to fight Sonny Liston that same month and become the greatest. Yeah, phenomenally. And, you know, Mitzi Gaynor, who was on the show on February 16th, her contract called for her to be headlining. So when the Beatles came out, I think Ed had to say, and tonight's show headlining will be Mitzi Gaynor and then the Beatles, (laughs) which was one of those funny things in history because, you know, the Beatles were, you know, an unknown then. And there was quite a a bit of concern inside CBS that, you know, Ed was uh, losing it a bit, that he would book these guys who had never been here before three weeks in a row. Like, you know, is he going to sink in the ratings after the preliminary broadcast? And as it turns out, the others were not quite as high. But together, between the three, I, I believe a quarter of a billion viewers saw those first three shows. That's incredible. So the numbers were very consistent and, and strong. It was the music that I really always loved the most. I mean, I love American entertainment. I love Broadway. I even enjoy classical and opera and comedy. I mean, I, who doesn't? You know, it's the whole mix. But um, it was the rock and roll because of just my age at the time that was so pivotal. And every time I was doing a show and I needed to license the material, it always seemed the best performances were on Sullivan most of the time because that's when the artists, whether it was James Brown or whether it was, you know, Marvin Gaye or whether it was, you know, Elvis or the Beatles, they all knew that was the big stage they had to be on. And uh, they did their best. And that's why when you make documentaries or tell stories using film clips, it seems that uh, Sullivan is a prime source, and I kept working on it. I worked on Elvis's last movie, uh, the last one he made when he was doing a documentary called Elvis on Tour in uh, 1972. He died five years later, and I was just starting on Into the Business, and that was the first time I started really looking at this material and going through Sullivan's stuff and and looking at it in, in the past. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I wasn't even in the country when Elvis was on Sullivan, so it was all new to me. And I went, oh, my God, now I get it. You know, this is this is why there was such a furor when he stepped on that stage and had to shoot him from the waist up only and everything. Right. And, and, uh, was that was that Ed, though, that was behind some of that, or was that the network that was I, censoring? I think, it, I think it was the network to a large okay. extent. I, I think it was, you know, CBS censorship unit, nicely named standards and practices. <laughs> but, you know, what was, you know, deemed inappropriate at the time is humorous in retrospect, you know. And uh, I'm not sure why they did some of the things they did, because it's hard to find uh, the accurate uh, answer as to what what happened and why. But uh, when I interviewed Ray Manzarek about the door situation, he, he really got in-depth into when they asked them to, you know, take out the word higher from the song Like My Fire. And right. uh, they decided they weren't going to do it. Well, it was the same thing with the Stones. It was let's spend the night together. It was let's spend some time together. Was that what they yeah, asked them well, to change the it Stones, to? The Stones agreed to the change because they said they couldn't go on. And then they said, oh, we'll change it for this, you know, for this performance. But I saw Mick Jagger. I've seen this performance. He He kind of... When he had to sing that line differently, you could see his eyes rolling like, exactly. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Good catch, Dave. Yeah, you know, he's looking at the kids going, you know, can you believe it? You know, I have to change the lyrics right. and the night is so bad. I mean, there were, you know, Wake Up Little Susie by the Everly Brothers was a, you know, a controversial song because apparently 
either in the movie theater or wherever, they fall asleep, apparently after making love, and what are they going to tell their parents, you know, in the morning and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's a funny thing, because when uh, Ed does the introduction to the song, he kind of has to do an intro that suggests that, uh, you know, there's nothing... Uh, you know, to be concerned about in the lyrics here. You know, there, there's all that going on. And with music, there's always some, not always, but very often, some underlying double entendre in terms of the lyric and the content. Sure, sure. And you know what? There's something else. You know, you mentioned working on Elvis's film. In 1988, um, Andrew, you released the critically acclaimed, acclaimed film Imagine John Lennon, and which, which an amazing, amazing documentary that, uh, you know, that I want to make sure I connect you to as well. It has... You know, it spanned Lennon's life and career, uh, you know, really on his post-Beatles years, too. And it's been called the definitive film about John Lennon. That's something to be pretty proud of. Well, thank you. I am very proud of it because I was honored to be able to be given the the opportunity and the task of telling John's story. Because uh, John, I thought, was, you know, another pure genius. And his body of work is remarkable. And, and his his impact on our lives and and how he changed rock and roll and how lyrics became so important you know he really wrote poetry and uh in so many ways you know the messages and the impact on our lives of what uh john paul george and ringo pulled together as a band in the beatles uh was continued in their solo careers after the band broke up but um John lived his life uh, in such a way that uh, he wanted it to be pretty transparent. I don't think it was totally transparent, of course, who's is, but he said what he thought at all times, and it got him, it got him into a fair amount of trouble. In fact, when the Beatles were in America in 1966, and he said, uh, the, the article came out from a British journalist who said that uh, John Lennon says that they're bigger than Christ. That caused such a furor that actually, you know, Brian Epstein and everybody around the Beatles, including, you know, the, the Beatles themselves, wondered if they would survive that. And they barely did. I mean, there was such a furor. People were burning Beatle records, especially in the South. And, uh, you know, there, was, uh, there were death threats when they appeared in Memphis. They had heavy, heavy police security around a concert. And by August 66, for one reason or another, they just said, you know, it's too dangerous to be out there. I'll tell you, Andrew, absolutely amazing work, and I'm I'm so glad to see that the Sullivan shows are in such such great hands. Um, amazing collections from the Ed Sullivan Show, history, and so much more, including the Beatles, available online at edsullivan.com. Andrew, thanks so much for hanging out with us. I know it was a little longer than we uh, talked about, but it's just no such, such fascinating stuff. And again, I'm I'm just so glad that you've embraced television history and are, are taking uh, good care of it on behalf well, of all of us. You're very kind, Dave. You know what? It's a, it's truly a labor of love. I mean, you know, when it's very fortunate when you get to do something that you really enjoy doing and uh, to be involved with something that is so much fun as, you know, the Sullivan Show and rock and roll history and entertainment history and various aspects of what makes life most interesting. It really is a gift. So I'm very grateful, and I thank you for your interest, and uh, I appreciate your time as well. Thank you, Andrew Salt, everybody. Top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom are next, right here on 720 WGN.